If you will this morning, take your Bibles and open to 1 Samuel chapter 15. I thought that we would cover the whole chapter this morning, but as I got to studying and looking more into this, there's just some, uh, there's some things in 1 Samuel 15 that, that I felt would be good if we just kind of stopped and spent some time with instead of speeding through. We're not in a hurry, so we're not on anybody's schedule. So we're just going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. Before I had children, parenting was simple. I was an expert. If your child disobeys, you discipline them. It's that easy. It's that simple. And so before I had children, boy, I didn't like to see a child disobey and the parents not immediately discipline that child. What were they thinking? And it really annoyed me when a parent would count to three. Y'all ever done that or had somebody? One, two, two and a half. You know, y'all know what I'm... <laughs> but now as a parent, it's not so simple. Discipline is not a parent's only job. Sometimes the job is to have patience. And a good parent finds the right balance between patience and judgment. And if I ever find it, I'll let you know. The balance between patience and judgment is also true of God. And the way he deals with people, the difference is that he's not looking for the right balance. He always knows it. He always has it. He's perfect in all of his ways. He's far more patient than we deserve, and yet a perfect judge always. And so God is patient, but his patience does have limits. Sometimes... Well, I guess I should say all the time, there will come a time when his patience yields to judgment. And that's exactly what we'll see in our text this morning in 1 Samuel 15. I titled the sermon, The Patience and Judgment of a Complex God. The first three verses of 1 Samuel 15, we don't really have a context. We're not really told when this happened during Saul's kingship, probably relatively early on. um, But it's right after the end of chapter 14 that, that ended with just a summation of everything he did. He fought a lot of battles and won a lot of wars. And then we kind of jump into another specific story here in chapter 15. In the first three verses, the prophet Samuel will approach Saul. And he's got a message and a mission from the Lord. Look at the first three verses of 1 Samuel 15. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's the first three verses of of chapter 15. And the first thing that we see Samuel reminding Saul of was how he became king in the first place. And that gives him a reason, as if you need a reason, but it gives him a reason to listen to God and obey. To remember what he has done for you, Saul. He said, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king. That may seem simple to us, but Saul needed to remember that. He didn't rise up on his own and take the reins of the nation out of his own drive, out of his own ambition, because he was the the best and brightest, and because people were just flocking to Saul's leadership. They wanted a king, but God chose him. God made him king. He was the people's choice. It was the one they wanted. 
But God made him king. God sent a prophet to anoint him as king. This was not Saul's doing. And so Saul is obligated to listen and obey the words that God delivered to him through Samuel. And so it's a reminder that although you may be king, Saul, you're not sovereign. You're still a servant. I made you king. My prophet anointed you as king. And so Samuel even says, Therefore, hearken or listen to the voice of the Lord. Saul's going to have a, uh, Samuel has a message from the Lord, and it has to do with the extermination of the Amalekites, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute, but I don't want us to overlook the fact that in spite of all of Saul's foolishness that we've seen the past several chapters, in spite of all of his failures that we've seen the past several chapters, God is still willing to use Saul. Isn't the patience of God in our lives pretty remarkable? The fact that God is still willing to use those who have failed gives each one of us hope. And it gives each one of us purpose. If one mistake or one failure ended our opportunity to serve God, then none of us would be here right now. Be glad that our God is patient with sinners. That He's long-suffering when we fail. But don't take His patience lightly. Be thankful for the many second chances that God gives us and take advantage of those opportunities. God is patient, but we need to take advantage of His patience and serve and do the things He has called us to do while we have the chance. And this, this mission that God gives Saul here has to do with a people group, the Amalekites, that actually are distantly related to the Israelites. The Amalekites descended from Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother. Jacob later became Israel and was renamed as Israel. And so this is distant relatives, very distant here, but they don't treat each other like family at all. At least the Amalekites didn't treat the Israelites like family. When the Israelites left Egypt and God delivered them out of slavery, they were on their way to Mount Sinai and completely unprovoked, absolutely unprovoked, the Amalekites ambushed the Israelites. They attacked them, and they did so in a very despicable, evil, shameful, and low way. Uh, it's one thing to just attack someone, but the way the Amalekites did it is even low for that. What they did was they ambushed the Jews who were at the end of the caravan. They laid in wait, we read in these verses here, and as the, the huge Israeli caravan passed by, they just waited and waited and then what they did was they attacked those who were at the end of the caravan. The people who would have been at the end would have been the elderly people. The maybe mothers with, with nursing babies. Uh, people who were handicapped or injured. Those who were just exhausted at the time. The Amalekites attacked those Jews for absolutely no reason. Completely unprovoked. Now the Lord delivered the Jews that day. If you remember, that's the story of uh, Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms. And as long as Moses' arms were held up, the Jews were, uh, were victorious under Joshua in the battle. Uh, so the Lord delivered Israel that day out of the hand of the Amalekites. He also proclaimed a judgment of annihilation against the Amalekites for this despicable evil. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 through 19, uh, kind of remembers this story. And, and God, through Moses, and God says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. 
how he attacked you on the way. Listen, when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. God declared severe judgments on the Amalekites for this terrible wickedness. And we see it again here in 1 Samuel 15 as Saul is given the mission to really complete the job and finish the task. And some people are bothered by this. Some people struggle with such declarations. And they say, how can a loving God pronounce so much death? And I want us to deal with that for a moment. I mentioned I thought we might could go through the whole chapter in one sitting. And, uh, but there were several things that there's some good lessons in here. And I want us to spend some time thinking about this because that's a very real question. You may have talked with somebody before who maybe they're an unbeliever or maybe they're struggling and this is their go-to. How can God be so loving and yet He decrees so much death? And so I want us to be prepared on how to handle that and actually look at that for a minute. There's several things that we need to understand. First of all, God is love. But He is much more complex than just love. He's not a teddy bear. Think about you and I for a minute. We are finite human beings, and yet we cannot be limited or described by just one attribute or one characteristic. God is the most complex being in the universe. He surely cannot be defined or limited by one attribute or characteristic, no matter how true it may be. He's bigger than that. So, of course, God is love. He loves us so much. He proved His love to mankind by any, beyond any doubt by sending His only begotten Son to die on our behalf so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have eternal life. God is love. He proved it. But He's so much more. He is also holy. He is also righteous. He's also pure. He's also just. And many other things. And in His holiness and His righteousness and, his, and because He's just, He also deals justly and righteously with sin. He loves sinners. He sent Jesus to die for sinners. But He must remain righteous in dealing with sin. And that means judgment. And that's the second thing that we need to understand here is that this was judgment for wickedness. This is not some whimsical decision by God who just likes to stir things up from time to time to see how people will react. God's not like that. This is not a dark decision from a, uh, from a God who delights in that sort of thing. This was divine judgment for terrible evil. And we see that in these verses. If you look back in verse 3, and you see this phrase, two-word phrase, utterly destroy. Utterly destroy. This refers to uh, people or things who are set apart for the purpose of divine judgment. 
You can almost think of this phrase, utterly destroy. It's, it's like a black sheep cousin to the word holy. You say, what do you mean by that? Something that is holy is set apart for God, but in a good way. It's set apart to serve God, to bring Him glory, to be used by God in a positive way. Something that's devoted to destruction here is also set apart for God, but for a different purpose. It's set apart for the purpose of divine judgment. And that's the idea here. It's, it's the same terminology used here that was used in Joshua to describe the battle of Jericho. You remember that battle? It was their first battle when they were taking the promised land. And the Israelite soldiers were to utterly destroy it, except for Rahab, who hid the spies. The soldiers were not to take any spoil from Jericho. They were not to receive any benefit from Jericho. It was totally devoted to divine destruction. It was set apart for that purpose. And it's the same idea here with the Amalekites. This is a, a one author describes it, he says, the task was a solemn and holy one since those Israelites who carried it out functioned as the Lord's agents of judgment. These soldiers would receive no benefit. They were to take no spoil. This wasn't anything like that. This was a very grave and serious matter. It was the Lord's judgment against sin. A third thing we need to understand, number one, God is love, but He's more complex than that. Number two, this is judgment for wickedness. Number three, this judgment would fulfill the promises of God. In Exodus 17, after the Amalekites had attacked God told Moses, he said, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Well, they're still alive in 1 Samuel 15. But that was a promise that God had made. That was the judgment that he handed down. But even beyond that promise, there's another promise. It's a promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, God promised Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curses thee. The Amalekites attacked God's people in the lowest way imaginable. And by dishonoring the Jews, by cursing them, they brought upon themselves God's judgment because God had already decreed and promised that if you curse the descendants of Abraham, I will curse you. That has already been decreed and laid out. If the Amalekites went unpunished for their sins, then God would be a liar. But God cannot lie because He's holy and He's righteous. And so He always keeps His promises, even with that promise is judgment. And still another side to all of this that we shouldn't overlook and we cannot overlook is God's mercy and patience. The Jews were commanded to annihilate the Amalekites when they entered the promised land, but big surprise, they failed to do so. It has now been hundreds of years since that time. And so God in His mercy and in His patience has withheld judgment for centuries. Giving the Amalekites plenty of time to repent, to ask forgiveness, to turn to Him. But this was a group of people that did not do that. 
They were still wicked. They were still hateful towards Israel. Look back at chapter 14 and verse 48. And he gathered an host and smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. The Amalekites were still sending raiders into Israel and taking things and fighting with Israel, even during Saul's time. If you look down in chapter 15, verse 33, look at what Samuel tells their king, King Agag. Verse 33, And Samuel said, As thy sword has made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. King Agag had... He was responsible for who knows how many murders, who knows how many deaths at the hands of King Agag, at the hands of King Agag, excuse me. These were still wicked people who were still cursing God's people, the descendants of Abraham. Not only, though, was God merciful with them and patient for hundreds of years, He was also merciful and patient with the Jews who failed to follow His commands. And now, he's giving King Saul and his army a second chance to be used by him and to obey. How can a loving God pronounce so much death? I hope you see that people may think that's a simple question. It's a complicated question, but there are answers to it. God is love, but he's more complex than that. This is judgment, not just some whimsical decision. This fulfills the promises of God. And God has already been merciful and patient far longer than any of us would ever dream of being. I wanted to just spend, spend a minute, spend some time on that because you have probably already talked to people that ask that question or maybe you will and you need to know how to respond to it. Be prepared to, to answer someone who asks that question but still understand that some people, not everyone, but some people ask questions that they don't care to hear the answer to. I want you to listen to this. The unbelieving critic who is angered by God's judgment would be appalled if God were lenient. If people question God's love when He judges evil, then they would question His integrity if He didn't. Some people ask the question and they're generally, uh, genuinely searching. And so we need to know how to answer it. But some people just ask the question because they're, that's who they are. They're critics. And so don't put pressure on yourself that, well, if I can't convince them, if I can You tell them the truth and let the Holy Spirit convict their hearts. He's better at his job than you are. Okay? And just know that some people don't want to hear the truth anyway. That doesn't mean we shouldn't say it and shouldn't be prepared to respond. Unbelievers often question God for the problem that sin creates without realizing that God's the answer to the problem that sin creates. So Saul has been assigned with this very solemn task. And so he summons an army in verse 4 through 6. It's actually the second largest army ever mentioned to be under his command. Look at verse 4 through 6. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Tel Aim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley... 
And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. The Kenites here refers to the family and the people group that were actually uh, Moses' father-in-law Jethro and that, that group of people. Uh, they were not evil towards the Amalekites. Uh, they were not evil towards the Jews like the Amalekites were. You remember Moses' father-in-law Jethro had some good advice for him from time to time. Uh, these, were, these were nice people to the Jews. They got along. They, they showed them kindness, Saul said. He had remembered that. And so uh, the kindness that Saul here shows to the Kenites and says, you need to leave so that you're not destroyed with the Amalekites, it's not only merciful, but it's right. And it goes back to that promise that God made to Abraham. The Kenites were kind to the Israelites, and therefore God would bless them. And Saul, maybe surprisingly to us, surprises me at least, he shows some sensitivity here to this group of people and shows some awareness of God's word and God's promise to Abraham. These people are not under God's judgment. They need to be blessed. They blessed Israel. So you need to leave. This is a merciful thing by King Saul, and it was right. They're blessed to not be part of this divine judgment. I firmly believe that the promise God made to Abraham is still in effect. God blesses those who bless them and curse those who curse them. I believe that's one reason why the United States of America has prospered so much in really a short time. It's due to the blessing of God because of our relationship with Israel and the freedom that Jews who live here enjoy. I pray that the USA will always be a nation that blesses Israel. I pray that we're more like the Kenites than the Amalekites. I don't know how long that will remain true. But that promise of God is still true. Pray for our country that we will be a friend to Israel. Once the Kenites were safe, Saul and his army attacked the Amalekites and they were overwhelmingly victorious. But they were not overwhelmingly obedient. Look at verse 7 through 9. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur. That is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But, Paul, uh, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good. And would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Do you see any problems with the actions of Saul and the soldiers? Did they obey? Partially? Partial obedience is disobedience. Just like a half-truth is a lie. First of all, they spared King Agag, right? Secondly, they spared the best of everything else, the best livestock. We're told that only, the, only what was vile and refuse, only the nasty stuff of the Amalekites did they actually devote to destruction, only the bad animals, the lame animals. And both of those actions violated the command of God. If you look back in verse 3 again, they were to utterly destroy everyone and everything. 
This was a serious and solemn occasion of divine judgment. And Saul and his army are given this huge responsibility, and yet they don't follow through. And they disobeyed God. God takes disobedience very seriously. And we'll see that in just a minute. We'll see it, Lord willing, next week as we finish the chapter. But just think in our lives, not only individually but as a church, the solemn tasks that the Lord has given us. Think about as a church, we've been given the task of the Great Commission, that's what we call it, to make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. We need to obey that command, not partially, but completely. I don't ever want North Bryant Baptist Church to grieve the Lord because of our failure in following His commands. I don't want you as an individual to grieve the Lord because you fail to serve Him and do the things that He has called you to do and live the way that we're supposed to live. Say, can I really grieve the Lord? Yes. Look at verse 10 and 11. He takes disobedience seriously and he is grieved by Saul's failure. Look at 10 and 11. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he is turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. This word for repent here in verse 11 before you cringe and think, oh my goodness, God is repenting. This is not the word that is usually used to describe man's repentance. It's a completely different word. Uh, this does not have the idea of turning from sin to righteousness. That's right? a different word. Um, God never turns from sin to righteousness. He is righteous. It's His character. It's His nature. He never does anything wrong. He never makes any mistakes. He never has any evil thought, any evil action. He does nothing wrong. So when you see the word repent here, don't think it's repenting for doing something wrong and turning around to doing something right now. A completely different word is used to describe when men do that. The, the idea of this word for repent it gives the idea of a, of a deep, heavy breathing. And so it, it gives the idea of someone physically displaying their emotions. It could be sorrow or compassion or comfort. You think about when you're really emotional, not in a bad way, not that you can't control it, but if you're feeling really sorry for someone, you might let out a sigh. Just That's the idea of this word. It's a, it's a deep, heavy breathing. It's an emotional response. It can mean to be grieved. It can mean to lament. It can mean to feel sorry for something. Some modern translations say regret. That I regret that I made Saul king. And that's probably a, a good translation as long as we don't go too far with that um, for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's a, there's a heresy. Uh, that it may be, be, it's maybe gaining steam a little bit. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but it's called open theism. And open theism basically states that God is open to the future in the sense that He doesn't know the future. He's still open to it just like we are. He doesn't have perfect foreknowledge of everything. That's what open theism states. So an open theist would take this verse and say, ha, see there? 
God regretted that he made Saul king. If he, had, had, if he would have known what kind of king Saul would have turned out to be, he would have made a different decision. But he didn't. I reject that as total and complete and utter heresy. It's a slap in the face to God and his omniscience and his sovereignty. I could turn to dozens of scriptures in the Bible that prove God is omniscient, that he knows everything. He even knows the hairs on our head. If God doesn't know the future, then how can I trust in the promises of God about the future? Open theism is, is junk. It is heresy. And so, we know that God did know exactly the kind of king that Saul would be. Samuel warned the people about it, didn't he? In fact, God is already searching for the replacement, right? In chapter 13, God told Saul, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. I've already selected him. God knew this would happen. He, this is not a surprise to God. It doesn't mean that he didn't know that he was not omniscient or didn't know the future. Saul's failures and his disobediences did not surprise God. They also didn't mean that God made a mistake in setting Saul up as king. So don't, don't look at regret as either of those two things. But Saul's mistakes still did grieve God. And that's the idea here. There was sorrow here in that, that regard. You say, but if God already knew it, then why is, he, why is he grieving here? Have you ever cried at the end of a movie that you've seen before? Why, why were you so emotional if you already knew how it ended? God knew how it was going to end. He knew Saul would fail because he's all-knowing. But God still shows an emotional response when people fail. It's this almighty sigh, if I can say it that way. Just, Saul. And there is grief there. He regretted it. Not in the sense that he was surprised or that he did anything wrong, but in the sense of showing remorse over Saul's disobedience. God wasn't the only one who saw it at that time either, was he? Look at the end of the verse again. It grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all night long. The word grieved there for Samuel is a different word. It actually means that he was angry. Samuel was mad. I can't, I can't even fathom how angry Samuel was because he had warned the people several times, you don't really want a king. You don't know what you're asking for. Here's what a king's going to do. They get a king. He does everything Samuel said he would do. He has failed God time and time again. And now God says, I'm sorry that I made Saul as king. It's grieving me. And Samuel's mad. He cries to God all night long. I don't think Samuel's angry at the Lord. I think he's angry at Saul and, and the, his failures and his disobediences and the people of Israel maybe for asking for a king. One observation from Saul's life that I think we should note and learn from here. How difficult Saul made it for everyone around him. You go all the way back to the time he was anointed as king uh, or, or selected as king in front of all the people. He made it difficult for them to find him because he was hiding behind the bags. Later on, his foolishness made it difficult for the soldiers who were under his command because he told them you can't eat during battle. Well, that made it difficult on them to fight. He made it really difficult on his son Jonathan who almost lost his life because of his rash vow. Now he's made it difficult on Samuel to sleep. He's so angry at what he's done. You say, that's silly, Brother Matt. I, 
I don't know. Don't be a Saul to other people. Don't live your life making decisions and making mistakes and doing things that make other people's lives difficult. We should be blessings to other people, especially to one another. Why would we want to do things that, that hurt others and that make things difficult? We're to build each other up. We're to love each other. We're to be unified and striving to serve God to the best of our ability with His help. Saul was a man who, who divided, who made it difficult, and I don't want anybody in this room to live like Saul did. Don't do things that hurt and make things difficult for others. We'll stop there this morning, and if the Lord allows us to, we'll finish the chapter next, next week. God showed patience with the Amalekites for hundreds of years. And he also showed patience with King Saul as well, didn't he? But eventually the time came for judgment. For the Amalekites, it was destruction. For Saul, it was losing his kingship, which if you keep reading in the end of the chapter, you'll see that happens. In the very next chapter, Samuel will anoint David, a shepherd boy, to be the next king. And so I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. How am I responding to the patience of God in my life? How am I responding to the patience of God? Are you more like the Amalekites? Has God in His patience, has He convicted you time and time again of your sin? Has He been long-suffering towards you even though you refuse to turn and believe? Listen, at some point God's patience will turn to judgment. If you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will suffer individual destruction. You will suffer an eternity in hell away from the presence and glory of God for your unbelief and sin. So why would a loving God send someone to hell? God is more than just love. He is holy and He is righteous and He is just. But in His love... And because of His love, He provided a way of deliverance through His Son. And so if you're lost, be thankful for God's patience, but know that it has limits. Trust Him and trust His Son while you have the opportunity. The beautiful thing about His Son is that although Jesus Christ shows God's love so that we can be forgiven, Jesus Christ also meets every demand of God's justice because Jesus took the punishment for our sin. So your sin does not go unpunished. It's forgiven because Jesus took the punishment for you. God remains perfect. He's both just and the justifier. Maybe you have trusted Christ. I know many of you here have. Maybe like Saul, your service isn't what it ought to be. Maybe we're just partially obedient instead of fully committed. And yet God in His patience just keeps giving us opportunities every day we wake up to serve Him. In spite of our failures, in spite of our mistakes and our flaws. Take advantage of God's patience and surrender and completely obey Him before, like Saul, you may lose that opportunity. I read a poem this week, actually. I don't remember who wrote it. I don't have it in, in my notes. But the man talked about a perfect and unseen line separating God's patience and judgment. I mentioned that as a parent, I'm trying to find that right balance between patience and judgment. 
God knows it. He's so patient, and yet he is just. So trust him today. Be thankful for his patience. Would you stand and let's have a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from it. And God, we pray, and and we don't know why you're so patient with us. We don't know why you love us, but we're so thankful. Father, we pray that we will serve you while there's opportunity, that we will trust you while there's opportunity, Lord, and that you will just help us to live our lives and, and be a church that pleases you. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.